The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us objective truth about areas that we cannot perceive with our reason alone or with experience, that on the basis of your propositional revelation of Scripture, we have absolute truth. And we are here devoted this morning to the highest form of worship, and that is the study of your word so that we can take these doctrinal principles under the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can learn these things, have them stored in our soul, that we might live them, that we might grow to spiritual maturity, that you might be glorified. That is the chief end of man. So, Father, now we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, help us to concentrate this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we continue our study, the issue of grace versus works. Grace versus works. One of the greatest issues people face today is understanding how they can have a relationship with God that is not based on morality. No matter who you talk to, if anybody is actively engaged in witnessing of any kind or having any sort of dialogue with other others nominal Christians, let's say, or with unbelievers, they have a problem understanding the whole issue that sin is not the issue anymore. Sin is not the issue. Now, that's just hard for people to understand. We're so caught up with the fact that sin is a major problem. Now, there's all kinds of consequences to sin. I'm not denying that. There are personal consequences. There are relational consequences. There are spiritual consequences such as divine discipline and uh, whatsoever a man reaps that he will also sow, sow, reaping the consequences of our bad decisions. But in terms of our eternal relationship with God, sin is not the issue. People just can't get past that. They can't grasp that. They feel like there's something they must do. They must give up this. They must repent about that. They must solve this sin problem and do away with this before they can somehow impress God with how wonderful they really are. And the scriptures say that no matter what we do, we can never do anything that even comes close to impressing God or gaining God's approval. All our righteousness, that's an important concept, all our righteousness, it doesn't say all our bad righteousness, all the bad things, but all our righteousness, all the best that we do, God says is filthy rags. The best that we do consistently, no matter how good it is, it does not come up to the absolute standard of God, which is his perfect righteousness. And we have been studying this principle related to the integrity of God, which we must go over again and again through that repetition that we get it inculcated into our souls, that God's character, in his character, in his essence or attributes, he has, there are three critical attributes. They are his perfect righteousness. The plus here indicates absolute righteousness. He is perfect justice in everything that he does, every decision that he makes. God is absolutely fair because the righteousness is the standard of his integrity or his essence. That is the absolute criteria by which he evaluates and relates to everything. Justice executes that absolute standard. Love is the motivation. His love motivates him towards man. And grace is not an attribute of God, but is the expression, the policy of God toward his creatures. Now, when that standard is violated so that the righteousness of God rejects something, the justice of God must condemn it. The Supreme Court of Heaven condemns the action. So because man lacks perfect righteousness, because man is a sinner, 
and he has minus R, he is condemned by the supreme court of heaven. But the love of God motivated him, for God so loved the world that he gave his unique son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God motivated him to provide a solution based on grace. Grace means it is a free gift. It is not earned or deserved. Now, two things among several consequences of Adam's original sin. Two things I want to emphasize. Number one, this minus here. That minus means that man's righteousness is in the debit column. He has a problem of lacking something. He lacks anything good. He lacks righteousness. The Scripture talks about this sometimes in terms of the stain of sin. That's why you have the imagery of cleansing and purification. So man loses the ability to produce righteousness. He is a sinner, and that needs to be solved. The sin problem needs to be taken care of. Secondly, man lacks, not only is he in the, in the debit column, but he lacks any kind of perfect righteousness. Not only, he can't just be neutral. He can't just be restored to a position of neutrality where he has a zero balance. He has to acquire perfect righteousness in order to have a relationship with God. Now, this, the, the, when you deal with the sin problem, the stain problem, you're dealing with cleansing. When you deal with the righteousness problem, you, you slip over into the category we've studied, which is the imputation or crediting to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's on that basis that you have justification. And then, because of the cleansing, imputation, justification, then we get in, got into the whole doctrine of regeneration, where we lack a human spirit because we're born spiritually dead, so God, the Holy Spirit, creates and imparts to us at the moment of salvation a human spirit. Now, that's sort of an overview. We have to, it's early this morning, isn't it? We have to bring our attention back to bear on the Scriptures and get over our Halloween celebrations yesterday or whatever you did or just staying up late eating the candy the kids didn't come by to get. So now everybody's on a has a sugar hangover the next morning. So Paul has been establishing a very intricate argument here in Galatians chapter 3. The Galatians have been distracted by this false doctrine that works are necessary. After Paul came in and taught them the gospel that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, there were a group of Jews that we call Judaizers, and these Jews came in and said, no, 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 Paul's not right. He's not connected with those apostles down in Jerusalem. He doesn't have it right. What you have, Faith in Christ is okay, but there also has to be the works of the law. You have to follow the Mosaic law. Now, Paul is raising several important issues in this passage, and I want to draw a chart up here on the overhead. We're going to have two columns. One column we will label of faith. This is the phrase that Paul uses throughout this chapter to describe those who are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Of faith versus works of law. This is the legalist. There's always legalists who... The problem with legalists is they don't think the sin problem's been solved and you have to solve it. You always hear the evangelist who emphasizes your sin that you need to get rid of all that sin and repent of all that sin before you can be saved. The Bible never puts it that way, not once. In fact, as we've been studying in the second hour in the Gospel of John, John wrote that Gospel specifically so people could come to salvation, and he never once mentions the word repentance in the entire Gospel. And the point is that repentance is not an issue at salvation. So what does Paul say here? Let's just chart the contrast in these first uh, 14 verses. We'll cover verses 10 through 14 this morning. First of all, he raises three questions in the first five verses. Verse 2, he says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, the issue here, Galatians, we want to find out something. Was your salvation from faith or works? It was from faith. So salvation is by faith alone. When I came to you, 
several years ago and explained the gospel. It was by faith alone, in Christ alone, and you received the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is one of 40 different things that happens to every believer at the moment of salvation. It is non-experiential. The only way you know about it is that Scripture tells you, but it is part of the package that God gives every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation. That moment, God the Holy Spirit takes up personal residence in the believer, and he is indwelt by the Spirit. Now, this is permanent and cannot be lost. Another ministry of the Holy Spirit at salvation is one we referred to earlier, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which relates to the power or the ability to live the spiritual life. Part of the reason it's called the spiritual life is because it is specifically empowered and uh, made possible because of the, this unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, which can be lost when the believer sins. So the indwelling is permanent, but the filling can be lost. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It means that you are in a status of carnality, operating on the sin, your sin nature instead of relying upon God, and you reverse that through the use of 1 John 1, 9 in confession. So Paul says, did you receive the Spirit, that is the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or hearing with faith? Answer, you received the Holy Spirit, you were saved by faith alone. That's his point. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... Now that you've begun this way by relying on God the Holy Spirit through faith alone and Christ alone, are you now being matured by the flesh? Answer is self-explanatory. They began by the Spirit. They knew that. So they began the spiritual life by the Holy Spirit of faith. So there's no salvation by the works of the law in their past experience. There's no spiritual life by the law. When, when Paul came. And then in verse 5, he asks the third question, does he, that is God then, who provides you with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and works miracles among you, do it by the works of law or by hearing with faith? The answer is obvious, that it is miracles that were done there, and miracles were used during the apostolic period only because the completed canon, or because the canon of Scripture was not complete, God allowed the apostles, gave them the ability to perform miracles, specifically, 2 Corinthians tells us, as a sign of the apostles. A sign. It was their calling card. They didn't have the canon of Scripture. They didn't have a New Testament. And so in order to attest the fact that their, their message was indeed from God, God gave them the ability to perform miracles. And so Paul says, did this come through the Holy Spirit by faith? Or was it by works? Obviously, it's over here in the faith column. It wasn't by works. So he's made three critical points in terms of his argument to substantiate the fact that all of this began by means of faith alone in Christ alone and continued by faith alone in Christ alone. So why now, you idiotic, stupid Galatians, and he's using very strong language here in the Greek. He's not holding back at all. This is not some little wimpy pastor who's just saying, Oh, you poor, dear, sweet people. You know, you're just a little confused. Now let's straighten it out. He's very harsh with them. Did you do this by faith alone or by works? And then he gives the example of Abraham, which we've studied the last couple of weeks, that he goes back to Abraham in verse 6, and he says, Abraham was justified by faith alone and Christ alone. So Abraham is the type for all Jews. He was not a Jew. He was... Abraham was born a Gentile. There was no Mosaic law for another 600 years. He was born a Gentile, and he was saved a Gentile, and the Galatians are Gentiles, and there was no law involved. Verse 6, even so, Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Before he left Ur of the Chaldees, before there was an Abrahamic covenant, before anything, Abraham believed the Old Testament promise of God that he would provide a Savior who would pay the sin penalty for man, and because of that, he was declared to be righteous. That is justification. So he says, his point is, Abraham was justified by faith alone and, it, and not by Mosaic law. It didn't even exist. Verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So not only was Abraham, but listen, if you're going to be a son of Abraham, that's also by faith alone. So verse 6, Abraham's justified by faith, 
And so anybody who wants to follow in Abraham's footsteps, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, they do it by means of faith alone. Then in verse 8, it says that as part of the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise that through Abraham all the Gentiles would be blessed. So Gentile blessing is salvation, and that comes through faith alone in Christ alone, following the pattern of Abraham. The Mosaic Law was never designed to save anybody. As we will see, the Mosaic Law was to show that you cannot be perfect. You cannot do what is necessary. That is, you cannot acquire perfect righteousness on your own. It must be given to you. So the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith, notice that key phrase again, those who are of faith, are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So there is blessing in this category. There is not blessing in the works of the law category. Now there's going to be a contrast. Verse 10 shifts. It's like the hinge on a door. There's a turning point in his argument here. Up to now it's been a focus on faith and those who are of works, and now we're going to see what applies to those who, I mean, faith and those who are of faith, And in verse 10, it's going to focus to those who are of the law. Verse 10. This is an important passage for you to remember the next time you're talking to somebody who thinks that they're saved and they're going to gain approval and approbation with God because of what they do. For as many as are of the works of the law, those who are in this column, if you are of the works of the law and you're emphasizing the works of the law, this is what the Old Testament says. As many as are under the are of the works of the law, are under a curse. So over in the of faith column, there is blessing. But in the works column, there is cursing. By its very nature, if you are under the law, you are cursed. That is a synonym for the word condemned. We have studied this in detail, and we have seen that the word for condemned is the direct antonym of the word justification. So you have justification by faith alone in one side, that's by faith alone, and those who are of works are condemned. They are under the condemnation of the law. Cursed or condemned is everyone, everyone, not just some, but everyone who does not abide by what? Look at that word. That's an inclusive word, a universal word, all things. That means if you don't keep the law a hundred percent throughout your entire life. And remember, the Mosaic Law was not Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were simply the prelude or summation of the basic content within the Mosaic Covenant. There were 613 mandates in the Mosaic Law. So the next time somebody says to you that you can keep the Ten Commandments, remind them that there weren't Ten Commandments, there were 613, and they would have to keep all of them all the time throughout their entire life and never break one in one little bit. Otherwise, they come under the complete condemnation of the entire law. That's Paul's point. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, this is a very rough paraphrase from Deuteronomy 27:26. I don't want to take the time to go back to that verse this morning, but it's not stated exactly this way in the Old Testament. And what happens many times in the New Testament is under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the apostolic writer will take a verse from the Old Testament and he might add a little to it or modify it a little bit in order to make it fit the point that he is making at that particular time. So this is a general paraphrase from the Old Testament that in that verse clearly emphasizes that obedience to the Mosaic Law is an all-or-nothing proposition. So the purpose of the law is not to, show, not to give a way to salvation. In the Old Testament, they were not saved by keeping the law. For one thing, God created Adam, and Adam sinned somewhere, I believe, between four and 5,000 B.C., I think it's very clear from the Scriptures, and we're going to get a lot of information on that at the conference this next week. In fact, I asked uh, Charlie to specifically address the whole 
dating issue, uh, uh, radiometric dating and carbon dating and all the issues involved with that uh, at one of the sessions. But we will discover that, that just as God would create Adam and five seconds later Adam looked like he was 30 or 40 years old. He had a, the earth had an apparent age to it. God would create a full-grown tree and it would have all of the appearance of age. And you could perform a number of tests on that tree and all your empirical data would indicate that that tree was older than five or six seconds. That's why you have, it's called the apparent age view. That's why it seems like you can run a number of tests and seem like the earth is much older than it is uh, simply because it was created with apparent age. But we're getting sidetracked from this. So God created everything about 4,000 to 5,000 B.C. Adam sinned. And it's not until 14, approximately 1440 B.C. that God gives the Mosaic Law to Moses. So for all of that time, there's no law. Now, the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments do not establish the fact that murder is wrong, thievery is wrong, false witness is wrong, adultery is wrong. That's been wrong all along. But legal obedience is not the basis for salvation, and it never was. The law was to establish the fact that man could not be good enough. No matter how much he tried, he could never meet all the demands of the law. And if he couldn't meet all the demands of the law, then he would never acquire the level of righteousness, an absolute perfect righteousness. Man could never acquire that perfect righteousness required of God for fellowship. God's perfect righteousness can only have fellowship with perfect righteousness. God cannot have fellowship with negative righteousness. He cannot have fellowship with a sinful creature. So something has to happen. If man is a sinner, in order for him to be able to attain the perfection of God, it can only be given to him. He cannot earn it. He cannot gain it. He cannot do it on his own. So the point of the Mosaic Law was to demonstrate human inability not to provide a way of salvation. It also had other important factors because it was the basis for freedom and defining freedom and the rule of government for Israel for both believers and unbelievers and never had anything to do with salvation even though certain parts of the Mosaic Law taught principles related to spiritual life and salvation. So, what we see in verse 10 is the principle, the argument number one in this passage, that those who are under the law are cursed. They cannot ever attain perfect righteousness. Now, in verse 11 and 12, we have his second argument on the basis of law. His second argument. He says, Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. This is the proposition. No one is justified by the law before God. So let's, let's try to rephrase that a little bit and set this up in terms of a syllogism. So this is your first proposition. The law does not justify. The law does not justify. This is evident, from, and he uses a scripture to support this. The righteous man shall live by faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous man shall live by faith. So, let's paraphrase this for our second premise. The person who is declared righteous, that's what justification means. The person who is declared righteous, let's rephrase this so we have the same term. Whenever you have a good, a good construct of a, of a syllogism, you have similar terms. So the law does not declare righteous. The law does not declare righteous. The person declared righteous lives by faith. So it's by faith alone. So what's the conclusion then? The conclusion then is sort of a reverse conclusion. is The person who lives by the law then is not declared righteous. The person living by the law that picks up this term in your first premise. The person living by the law is not, I'm going to pick up that term, is not declared righteous. Not, not declared righteous. So that's your conclusion. That's how his argument's working. He builds it on one proposition, then another, and then his conclusion. 
Verse 12, however, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall, shall live by faith. So because the law is in contrast to, the faith, to, to faith, law does not declare righteous. The person declared righteous is by faith alone. Therefore, the person living by the law, left that word out, the person living by the law cannot be declared righteous. It's a very simple, logical argument. Now, what we're going to see is that his starting point here comes from Scripture. This is not rationalism. Rationalism has a starting point in human reason. Now, God gave us reason, and we are to use reason in the spiritual life, and learning about God is not irrational. It's based on the use of reason, but its starting point is from what God says. Its starting point is not from our own autonomous or independent use of reason. So Paul's point is, his second argument in this, these four verses, is that the righteous person lives by faith, not by the law, and that's the only way to justification. So the law can't justify. The law can't justify because it's in complete contrast to the principle of faith alone. Verse 13. He lays out the basis for justification. This is his third argument. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So we go back up here to what we saw earlier. That if you are trying to do anything by the law, by moral activity, thinking that your morality, your good deeds somehow overcomes the sin problem... The Bible says you're cursed, you're under condemnation, you are under the curse of the law because you are a slave to the law. You're constantly trying to apply all these principles to gain approval with God. But the contrast is, and the principle is in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now the word for redeemed is a very important word. It is the word ex agorazo in the Greek. Ex agorazo. E X A G A R A Z O. The You've heard of people who are agrophobics. That means there's a fear of the marketplace. These are people who have a a phobic condition where they hate going out where there are people. They stay home, they're incredibly uh, reclusive, and they can't stand to get out anywhere where their crowds are out in the open. And the agora was the Greek marketplace, and that's where that word comes from. So this has to do with a market. Specifically, in terms of the analogy in Scripture, we're talking about a slave market, that every believer is a slave to sin. We are born in the slave market of sin, and ex means that we are purchased out of it. And the word ex agorazo came to mean to purchase something out of the market. So what this tells us is that Christ's work on the cross purchased us out of the slave market of sin. A price, it emphasizes the fact that a price had to be paid. The word was also used uh, of, a, of a ransom that was paid for a kidnap victim, someone who was held against their will. It emphasizes the payment of a price. Now, the Scripture says in Romans 3.23 that there is a price associated with sin. Or, excuse me, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty for sin, and that is death, and it's not physical death, it is spiritual death, temporal separation from God and eternal separation, which means we are born physically alive but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, but you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. That means that man is born with a human body, that's the square, a human body and we'll put a circle in here for the human soul, but there is no human spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man, and the word there in the Greek is sukikos, the natural man, the soulish man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are 
spiritually discerned. They are understood through something called the Spirit, which we label to distinguish it from the Holy Spirit, the human spirit. This is an immaterial part of man that works in conjunction with the human soul to enable us to understand spiritual phenomena and to have a relationship with God. This is what happens when we put our faith alone in Christ alone at salvation and we're saved. God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and imparts that to us at the instant of salvation. And this is what the Bible calls being born again or regeneration, which is what we've been studying in the second hour. is the doctrine of regeneration, that a man must be born again in order to get into heaven. So we are born spiritually dead, and that means that there is a price. The wages of sin is death. So someone must die for us. Now, if the wage is spiritual death, not physical death, then the penalty that's paid for that sin must be in kind. It must also be a spiritual death and not a physical death. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, He did it not by dying physically for our sins, but by dying spiritually for our sins. That's what took place between the hours of 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness covered the face of the earth and Jesus Christ cried out to God the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried out to God the Father, that it was during those three hours that God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross every single sin committed in human history. And Jesus Christ paid the price. This is when redemption is accomplished. He paid the price. So the penalty's been paid. This is why it's wrong to make sin the issue in the gospel presentation. Because the penalty's been paid. The unbeliever does not have to do anything to take care of his sin. It's already been dealt with completely, 100% at the cross. Christ paid it in full. When, when The last thing Jesus said on the cross before he died was, Tetelestai. This is the perfect tense of the verb uh, teleao, T-E-L-E-I-A-O. Let me spell this in English for you, T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I and T-E-L-E-A-E-I-A-O. And it means complete, to make complete, to bring to completion, to bring to fulfillment. And it was used idiomatically in the ancient world as the payment of a bill. Paid in full. If a bill is paid in full, you don't add anything more to it. When the end of the month comes and you get your visa bill and you send in your check, you don't put in any extra money because it's paid in full. You don't want to give them anything more than they need. Once you give them that exact amount, it's paid in full and that's done and you don't add to it anymore. So many people are out there trying to add to what Christ did on the cross by their good works And it's just wood, hay, and stubble. It doesn't do anything. In fact, the scriptures make it clear that if you, that it's faith alone and faith plus anything destroys faith. If you dilute faith with works, it destroys faith and it becomes legalism and God does not accept that at all. It is by faith alone and Christ alone. It is by Christ's complete finished work on the cross whereby we are saved. So we're told in verse 13, Christ redeemed us out from the curse of the law. So let's look at it this way. All humanity is born in the slave market. We're right here. But Christ purchases us. We're purchased. We're out of the slave market. Now the issue here is not, are we still a a slave? The issue here is, Are we going to accept it or not? The issue is not the fact that we were a slave to sin, because that that price is paid. The issue is, are we going to accept it or reject it? So the issue at gospel hearing and in gospel presentation is not sin. The issue is Christ. The issue is, are you going to accept the free gift or not? The issue isn't what have you done, because that's been paid for. God in His omniscience knows all the knowable. He knew every single sin that would ever be committed in human history and every single sin was paid for at the cross. 
Paid in full. P-I-F. Every sin paid for at the cross. So there's nothing that can be added to it. It is no longer the issue. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He, the issue right there, is condemnation. What took place at the cross was the condemnation of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. He paid the penalty. We have to establish this fundamental point based on this passage. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Condemnation. Why did that happen? Why did that take place? We see the purpose clause in verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, critical phrase, in Christ, we have to understand this. Technical term. At the moment of salvation, two things happen to you. There's related to two spheres. There's the eternal sphere and the temporal sphere. Two circles. The moment you trust Christ as your Savior, the Scripture says you are identified for all time with Jesus Christ and you are placed in Christ through what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism signified identification. We are identified with Christ and we become part of His body. We are the body of Christ. We are in Christ for all time. This is a permanent relationship that can never be broken because it is based on what Christ did, not on what we do. So there's nothing we can do to lose it because it was never based in the first place on anything that we do. It is permanent. In the temporary sphere... We are given as part of the package of salvation, part of 40 things that God does for us. 39 are permanent, one is temporary, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The moment of salvation, we are out of fellowship. This is the sphere of temporary sphere of fellowship with God. The moment we sin, we are out of fellowship and out here in what the Bible calls carnality. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to live in obedience to God. When we disobey, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Uh, it quenches the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, and that's the realm of carnality, so we're operating under the power of the sin nature. The only way back into fellowship is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, <coughs> excuse me, and to cleanse us. And this is the Greek word, katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O, which means to cleanse or to purify. And this goes back, has a tremendous history of imagery in the Old Testament. The priests, when they were first became a priest, and remember, you were a priest because of your physical genetic heritage. You were a descendant of Aaron. had nothing to do with spiritual qualifications. It's all very physical it's all designed as a teaching tool. The priest was bathed. He was washed in whole. This is a picture of salvation and his complete cleansing from sin. But then whenever he was going to serve in the temple, and he went into the temple, here's a diagram of the temple. It goes in the front gate, which is, there's only one way into the temple, which signifies there's only one way into the presence of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. This is the outer court. The inner court, you have the Holy of Holies divided into two rooms. The inner room is the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resided over the mercy seat. The outer room is the holy place where you have the table of showbread, the uh, uh, incense that continually went up before God, and the uh, candlestick out in the Outer courtyard, the first thing you do when you come in, there was a sacrifice for sin at the, uh, at the altar, and then there is a gold, golden labor here where the priest washed what? He washed his hands and his feet. And his feet. It was washing. It was katharizo. It was temporal purification, indicated confession of sin and cleansing of what he had done and where he had gone, his feet and his hands, and he didn't have to wash his own body. That happened at the point that he became a priest. You see the same imagery picked up again in John 13 when Jesus tells Peter, you have been washed completely. Now you just need to have your feet washed. 
So there is a sense of purification at salvation for pre-salvation sins, and then there is confession after salvation for post-salvation sins, and this is the application of what Christ did on the cross in terms of regeneration. So let's stop here and look at the entire doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. Point number one. Let's look at the words, the etymology. That's the etymology means the study of words. It's not entomology, which is the study of insects. It is etymology, the study of words. Some people think that, wonder about why we do either. Okay, it comes from, in this passage, we'll just focus here. There's two words, two key Greek words, agorazo and ex, agorazo. A-G-A-R-A-Z-O, and then just put an X in front of it. X in, is a preposition meaning out of. They mean to redeem, to buy, to purchase out of, to set free. Another set of words, Greek words, are based on the root verb lutrao. L-U-T-R-O-O. And these, this word group is also used of redemption, and it has the idea of redeeming, paying a ransom, purchasing something. So the one thing that both word groups have in common is that a price must be paid. A penalty must be paid. The wages of sin must be dealt with. And that's very important in understanding the whole concept of redemption. Whenever you think redemption, you ought to think the payment of a price. There has to be this payment. So that brings us to point two, which is the definition. Definition. Redemption is the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whereby all humanity is bought from the slave market of sin. The saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whereby all humanity is bought from the slave market of sin. The penalty is paid. Jesus died for all. He is the Savior, the Scripture says, of all men, in 1 Timothy 4.10, the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So it is the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby all humanity is bought from the slave market of sin, in which they were born spiritually dead, in which they were born spiritually dead and delivered to the freedom of grace. The saving work of Jesus, one more time, the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby all humanity is bought from the slave market of sin or purchased from the slave market of sin, in which they were born spiritually dead and delivered to the freedom of grace. Redemption is realized. Okay, this is important. Redemption is realized and applied. It's actual. Only when a person is regenerated by faith alone in Christ alone. It is realized only when a person is regenerated or born again by faith alone in Christ alone. The problem is that we are born spiritually dead. Now, point three is that Jesus Christ is the only qualified Redeemer. Man is not qualified because he is, a, he is a sinner. When Adam sinned, he acquired a sin nature. First of all, Adam's sin had three effects. It's called Adam's original sin because it was the first sin in the human race, because it was Adam's, and Adam was the designated head of the human race. So that Adam's sin had repercussions both spiritually and physically for not only the human race, but the entire... Adam's original sin. Secondly, that impacted 
the, the physical world in terms of the genetic structure of the human race and Adam's original sin and the sin, Adam, with Adam's original sin, he acquired a sin nature which is passed on through the male. Now this happens because there are, in, in the operation of the uh, procreation and condemnation and passing on the sin nature to man, there are 46 chromosomes that are passed on. Now, the, the male sperm provides 23 chromosomes. When the woman's egg is released, it throws off through a process of called meiosis. It throws off polar bodies and gets rid of 23 of those chromosomes. This is a purification process, and in that, the sin nature or the taint of sin is removed from the egg so that the egg has been purified. But the sperm, through mitosis, splits from 46 to 23 and 23, and then those 23 chromosomes in the male sperm contain the sin nature, and they unite with the sin nature of, I mean, with the purified egg, and you have, that's what takes place at conception and fertilization. But in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the 23 chromosomes that were usually provided by the male were created perfectly by God the Holy Spirit, and were and and God the Holy Spirit created that and fertilized the egg for Mary, so that there was a virgin conception preceding the virgin birth, so that Jesus Christ is born minus a sin nature. He is born in human perfection. He is born in the same status that Adam had when he was created. He is untainted by sin and he is in a status of perfection which he maintained until his death on the cross. He was sinless. And because he was sinless, he could pay the penalty for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That's the mechanics of salvation. He's the only qualified redeemer and he pays the penalty for us on the cross. Now, all of this works together as part of the dynamic process of, the sin, of, of salvation. Man is on one side over here. God is here. When Adam sinned, a barrier is erected between God and man. There are several bricks in this barrier. The first brick is the sin problem. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Romans 3:23. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then there's the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is spiritual death. Then there's the problem of physical birth. We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Genesis 2.17, the penalty was announced. Romans 5.12, but God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.1, that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. So physical birth is the third brick in the barrier, the third problem that we face. The next problem that we face is a problem of the character of God. God is absolute perfection, and God cannot have fellowship with man, so His perfect righteousness and justice has to be satisfied before man can go to the cross. So we have uh, the, the uh, character of God. Then we have the next brick, one, two, three, four, five. The next brick is our position in Adam. We are born in Adam, and the Scripture says, In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. And then there is the problem of relative righteousness. Because we have minus righteousness, minus R, we cannot have fellowship with the perfect righteousness of God. Now, salvation is a complete package. We went over this last Sunday morning in the second hour. We're going over it again now because we have to understand how complex salvation is. When people start saying that you can lose your salvation, they have a very simple, simplistic, shallow view of all that God did for us on the cross. When people say that God can't solve our problems and we need to go to humanistic systems like psychology and many other things in order to solve our problems and go to all these workshops that are so prevalent today with so many corporations in order to try to get you psychologized and train you in how to solve problems, 
Christians don't understand that God solved the greatest problem you will ever face here at the cross. They don't understand the dynamics of salvation. They don't understand how complex and how deep all of this is and that if God did this much for you at salvation, He can solve any other problem we face in life. And we have to understand this because this becomes the foundation for everything. In fact, when you come to Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul starts addressing marriage and marital relationships and how husbands are to relate to wives and wives are to relate to their husbands and parents to children and children to parents and employers or masters to slaves, slaves to masters, employers to employees, how does he teach it? He says it all goes back to this. If you don't understand this and you don't understand grace, you'll never be able to make any kind of relationship work in life. So it starts here. You have to go over it again and again and again until we understand what grace is, until we understand what Christ did for us at the cross. That's the foundation for everything. So what happens? The sin problem is solved by the topic we're talking about this morning, which is redemption. Redemption. Key passages are Ephesians 1.7, which we'll look at in a minute, and 1 Peter 1.18-19. through 19. For we have been redeemed not with corruptible things from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood from a lamb, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption. The penalty of sin was solved by unlimited atonement. Christ died for all man. 1 Timothy 4.10 Physical birth is handled by regeneration. John 3, 1-5 If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The problem of the character of God is solved through the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty and God the Father in His perfect righteousness and absolute justice was satisfied. That's the word propitiation. Our position in Adam is solved by the fact that we are identified with Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And so we are now in Christ as opposed to being in Adam. And in relative righteousness, God the Father imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. He looks at that perfect righteousness and declares us just. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, we've gone over that time and time again. And so now we need to put some of these things together in a little different perspective. So that's point point four in our doctrine of redemption is that it is one aspect of God's redemption solution in the barrier. Point five relates to the Old Testament doctrine of redemption. Animal blood was the means of teaching the doctrine of redemption in the Old Testament. Animal blood. They would take a lamb. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. There was a box in there called the Ark of the Covenant, and it was made of acacia wood, picturing the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ, and then it was overlaid with gold, picturing His deity. Jesus Christ was uh, undiminished deity and pure humanity. There was a lid on this box that was called the mercy seat. Inside the box there were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and some manna indicating, and they were each symbolized Israel's disobedience to God and their sin. On top of the mercy seat there were two angels. These were called cherubs. Cherubs are always associated with the righteousness and justice of God. Those cherubs looked down on the sin of man. Because of man's sin, the righteousness of God must condemn human sin and must condemn humanity. But once a year, the high priest would come in and place a bowl of blood taken from an animal sacrifice of a lamb without spot or blemish. Remember, John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This blood was a representative analogy of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, His substitutionary spiritual death. That blood was placed on the altar so that the cherubim who represented the righteousness and the justice of God, instead of looking on human sin, saw the perfect the blood from the Lamb without spot or blemish, which meant that God then is satisfied. His righteousness and justice are satisfied. It was a picture of what would take place at the cross. So animal blood was the means of teaching the doctrine of redemption in the Old Testament. It was a teaching tool, an image. Exodus 12, 7 and 12, and, he, and uh, Hebrews 9, 22. 
Point number six. The blood of Christ is the purchase price of redemption. Let's turn to this passage. It's important. Ephesians 1, 7. We're in Galatians. It's the next book over. Three or four pages. Ephesians 1, verse 7. It is, it is the blood of Christ. Now, it's not His physical blood, because in crucifixion you use very little blood. Even when the soldier pierced his side, he was already dead. That's why water and blood came out, because of the separation of blood into uh, lymph and hemoglobin after death in crucifixion. So because of that, we know that he, he bled very little. It's not His physical blood. It is, the physical blood is simply a representation, a metaphor for His death. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now remember, the point of the cross is condemnation, not forgiveness. Condemnation. That's what we saw in Galatians 3 was condemnation. Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ pays the penalty for our sin. We have to get this fixed here. Christ pays the penalty for our sin. Let me get under here. This is coming off there. Christ pays the penalty for our sin. So the penalty is paid. That is the basis for forgiveness. Redemption occurred in 33 A.D. When you want forgiveness, it happens when you're saved in 1967 or 1978 or 1998, whenever it is. That is the beginning. All your pre-salvation sins from the time you're born till the time you put your faith alone in Christ alone are dealt with. At that point, you're forgiven. Remember, earlier I said there's two problems. Problem number one is there's a debit against you. There is minus R. You can't produce positive righteousness, and what happens is you need to be cleansed. You need to be cleansed of that past sin and then positive righteousness needs to be imputed to you. This just gets you to a zero balance in your, in your life, and plus R gets you to a positive balance of perfect righteousness. Two verses emphasize this. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's understand what's happening here. They're almost identical in their wording. Point number one, under Ephesians 1.7, this is still part of point six in the overall doctrine of redemption. Point number one, Paul is addressing the present possession of believers. He's not talking to unbelievers in Ephesians 1.7. The forgiveness of sins here is not something related to unbelievers. It says, in Him we. In Him is our position in Christ. We, he's talking to other believers. As part of our position in Christ, we have redemption. It has been accomplished in the past, and it has been applied to us as faith alone in Christ alone. It is a durative present tense. It continues. We cannot lose it. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. So he's talking to believers and their present possession in Christ. Secondly, point number two, redemption occurred at the cross and paid the sin penalty for every human being. This means that the issue for every unbeliever is not sin, because Christ already paid the penalty. The issue is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Redemption occurred at the cross, and paid the sin penalty for every human being. Point number three, let's have a reminder. Two things happened when Adam sinned. A negative balance, man was stained. Okay, right here. He's stained with sin, so that needs to be washed out. It's cleansing, katharizo. The second thing, he cannot produce, he lost the ability to produce positive righteousness or intrinsic good. Now, Isaiah 118 picks up on this imagery, and we read, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's this cleansing idea right here. So one of the first things that has to happen at salvation, now all these things happen simultaneously. The first thing that has to happen is there has to be a cleansing. All pre-salvation sins 
are forgiven. Forgiveness happens in time. It didn't happen in 33 A.D. It happens at the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. All your sins up to that point are dealt with in terms of cleansing. Remember, you have to be in fellowship with God. There has to be this cleansing so you can have temporal fellowship with God. So cleansing is going to relate to temporal fellowship. The next thing that happens, before we get ahead of ourselves, point number four to deal with cleansing is the Greek word katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O, which means to cleanse, to purify, to make clean. It always relates or always applies to the believer's rapport or relationship with God. He has to have that restored at the moment of salvation because of his pre-salvation sins. Now, they're paid for at the cross, but cleansing takes place at the moment of salvation. And we see this in a couple of different passages. First would be Acts 15.9. This is the uh, Jerusalem Council, which we've studied in the past in in relation to Galatians chapter 2. And there James says, And he, God, made no distinction between us, that is Jews, and them, that is Gentiles, cleansing their hearts, that is their mind, their inner part of their soul, by means of faith. So cleansing takes place at salvation. At the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, it takes place. It doesn't take place at the cross. In 33 A.D., you were not cleansed of your sins. You were cleansed of your sins in 19-whatever when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is related to pre-salvation sins. John 13.10, Jesus makes the same point to Peter. He wants to wash Peter's feet, and Peter, remember, is very stubborn, and Peter says, no, Lord, no, you can't do this. And, and the Lord says, unless I, you are already washed, all of you is already washed, uh, he says, unless I wash you, you'll have no part of me. So Peter says, well, wash all of me. And Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, bathing indicates the whole body. That's been dealt with, Peter. At the point of salvation, you are cleansed from all pre-salvation sins. You get forgiveness as part of the package. But you still need partial cleansing because you're going to continue to sin. There are going to be sins after salvation, post-salvation sins, and they need to be dealt with, and that's done through cleansing, which comes as part of 1 John 1.9. What does 1 John 1.9 say again? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's that word, katharizo, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in those, both of those passages, in Acts 15.9 and in John 13, verse 10, we see that, there, that cleansing is related to something that happens not at the cross, but in the believer's experience when they trust Christ as their Savior. So that brings us to our next point which should be point five. I may have left out a number or two for you. Point number five, the basis for forgiveness is the complete redemption performed at the cross. The price is paid here in 33 A.D. Forgiveness is realized in 19-whatever when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's a distinction in time. At the cross, the judgment of sin took place. At the cross, the judgment price for your sin took place. That happened in approximately 33 A.D. But it is in your experience when you trust Christ that at that point you receive forgiveness. This is the same point that John makes in 1 John chapter 1. And some people just can't seem to understand this. In verse 7... Of 1 John 1, John says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sins. You see, the blood of Jesus relates to redemption. That's the basis for forgiveness. So John starts off in verse 7 reminding us of the basis for forgiveness. But just because Christ died for our sins doesn't mean that every time we sin we're just automatically forgiven. He reminds his readers first of the payment, that that's the basis, but then there's something you have to do in time. 
When you sin, you have to confess it. This isn't legalism because you're not trying to add anything to Christ's work. You're not paying for it. It's not, re- it's not repentance. It's not penance. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It is simply admission or acknowledgement of sinful acts privately to God the Father. And the result then is cleansing, is forgiveness, cleansing, and you move forward in the spiritual life. You recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're restored to fellowship and you resume your spiritual life. That's the point of 1 John 1.7. You have to distinguish between the basis for forgiveness, which was accomplished at the cross in 33 A.D., and its application in time as forgiveness of pre-salvation sins at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, and then of post-salvation sins with 1 John 1.9. So that brings us to our last point in the doctrine of redemption, and that is that the soul of the believer is redeemed in salvation, Job 19:25 through 26. The soul of the believer is redeemed. Redemption is realized at the point of faith alone in Christ alone, Job 19, 19:25 through 26. Now, when we look at our passage in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, back to verse 10. Let's wrap this up so we don't leave any loose strings dangling out there for next week. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us, past tense, it's accomplished completely on the cross. He redeemed us out from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, a condemnation for us, for it is written, condemned or cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. Through faith alone in Christ alone you are saved. That is redemption provides the basis for forgiveness. But just because you are saved doesn't mean you're automatically forgiven. That's the basis for 1 John 1, 9, is because the penalty was paid. Because the penalty is paid, you don't have to pay a penalty through self-flagellation, through guilt, through penance, through bargaining with God, through giving up, through any other any human means like that. It's paid for once and for all at the cross, and it's realized in time, either at, at salvation for pre-salvation sins, or through confession in post-salvation sins. Well, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time together today to look at this important doctrine of redemption and how it relates to our forgiveness of sins and all that you accomplished for us on the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ as their Savior, is not sure of eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to put their faith alone in Christ alone. (coughs) Forming words and thought alone, They would simply say, Father, I accept your free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I rely on him alone for my salvation. That's all that's needed. Father, for those of us who are saved, we pray that you will reinforce our faith, our understanding of what you've done for us through everything here, especially now as we prepare for the communion service, the second hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.